another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski, and this is Episode 7, the final episode of the Fracture Season. As is the case with previous episodes in this season, I've partnered with Cincinnati Children's to offer CME and MOC Part 2, details in the episode notes and on PEMblog.com. All right, so we're going to talk today about foot and toe fractures. As a reminder, I would take a listen to the TIB-FIB episode for a review of the neurovascular assessment of the lower extremity. So just a little bit about foot anatomy, because I feel like maybe I missed a podiatry elective somewhere, but I don't know this as well as other parts of the body. So let's just talk about the structure of the foot and then move on to individual fractures and injury patterns, and I think that's a good way to structure things. The forefoot contains the metatarsals and the toes. The midfoot is the navicular, the cuboid, and the cuneiform bones. The hindfoot is the talus and the calcaneus. The Lisfranc joint separates the forefoot from the midfoot. You've probably heard of Lisfranc injuries if you are a fan of American pro football. In general, most kids with significant foot injuries will refuse to bear weight. You definitely always want to do a good neurovascular assessment and look for open wounds and compartment syndrome. If a foot fracture happens from a fall, look for other injuries, like a calcaneus fracture and lumbar spine fractures going together, for instance. In general, x-rays of the foot include AP, lateral, and oblique views. Most injuries are stable, don't require surgeries, and do fine with elevation and ibuprofen, along with splinting immobilization and follow-up with orthopedics. Let's start with the forefoot and talk about metatarsal fractures, because this is where you're going to see the majority of foot injuries in children. Less than five-year-old, the most common metatarsal fracture is the first. In older children, the most common is at the base of the fifth metatarsal. A third of all metatarsal fractures are in the shaft and distal portion, and then the other two-thirds are in the proximal shaft. Axial load, abduction injury, and crush injury are the three main mechanisms where metatarsals are broken. Stress fractures are seen in runners, and they're usually the second metatarsal. Obviously, kids with a metatarsal fracture are going to have pain and difficulty walking or refusal to bear weight. Just like in the hand, you're going to need to look for rotational deformity. So if the nails are not in the same alignment of the opposite foot, take both shoes off, so you should be worried about rotational deformity. Obviously, call orthopedics for open fractures, significant crush injuries, compartment syndrome, neurovascular deficits, display Salter Harris 2 fractures, all intraarticular Salter Harris 3 and 4 fractures, a metatarsal that's angulated greater than 20 degrees, which is relatively rare actually, an acute proximal diaphyseal fracture, that's the Jones fracture, I'll talk about that in detail in a little bit, and then fractures of multiple metatarsals. Most metatarsal fractures are usually managed non-operatively. Kids can be placed in a cast boot or short leg walking cast and see orthopedics within about 10 days. In general, the boot is preferred over casting immediately to avoid pressure ulcers and the low risk, but present risk of development of compartment syndrome. Children usually end up getting immobilized for about four to six weeks. Talk a little bit more about Jones fractures. Now these are acute fractures of the proximal diaphysis of the fifth metatarsal most often. 
and they have the highest risk of non-union among all metatarsal fractures that you're going to see in kids. So in a recent study from Mahan, they noted that the distance from the proximal tip correlates with the need for surgery. So when you look at the fracture, how far is it from the proximal tip of that fifth metatarsal? So between 20 and 40 millimeters, you know, or 25 to 50% of the overall metatarsal length from the proximal tip, that's got the highest risk for surgery because that's really the true Jones fracture. So you want to do a little bit of measurement or assure that radiology has done that. And if you're unsure or you think it's a Jones fracture, that's the one that you're going to want to call ortho on. Otherwise, you probably don't need to call them in the ED and you can have them follow up. Second metatarsal stress fractures, which I talked about earlier in the context of runners, usually get better if the patient stops doing what causes them. Those are actually tough to identify in the ED, and sometimes patients see those on follow-up when they get MRIs or other types of pictures. Moving further down the foot, let's talk about toe fractures. The first phalanx, or the great toe, is the most commonly fractured toe. You can see Salter-Harris 1, 2, and 3 fractures, as well as comminuted crush injuries. Non-displaced toe fractures heal really well within two to three weeks. So you can buddy tape them and definitely put a pad, gauze, or some foam material between the toes so you don't get skin breakdown. Or you can do a hard-soled shoe that casts you, and ibuprofen is really sufficient for pain. A patient that has a Salter-Harris 3 or 4 of the great toe, and especially ones that are kind of intra-articular, those will need ortho for pinning, and those are relatively rare in the pediatric population. Displaced Salter-Harris two fractures, seen a bit more commonly than those threes or fours I just alluded to, may need ortho and reduction if the following criteria are met. So you've got more than 20 degrees of angulation in the dorsal plantar plane, more than 10 degrees of angulation in the medial lateral plane, or more than 20 degrees of rotational deformity. And again, for rotational deformity, take a look at the position of the nail, the adjacent toes, as well as the other foot. So if you do need to reduce a toe fracture, especially that great toe, you kind of move the fracture fragments in the opposite direction of the force of the injury. Reducing a fractured toe is generally relatively easy, but if you can't reduce it, you may have tissue interposed in the fracture plane and ortho is going to have to deal with that. Fractures can be associated, just like in fingers, with subuncle hematomas. And these are usually when an object is dropped on the toe. You can trephinate if there's a small accumulation of blood and the nail still in place, versus removing, repairing, and then replacing the nail. If you've got a fracture at the distal toe and you've got a subuncle hematoma, consider that an open fracture. And I would put that patient on PO antibiotics, cephalexin, augmentin, clindamycin are all good choices. All right, so let's move further up the foot to the mid and hind foot. And we'll start with the talus because the Taylor neck fractures are the most commonly seen fractures in the mid and hind foot. These have a much greater likelihood for significant disability in the long run. Calcaneus, cuboid, navicular, and cuneiform fracture, as well as tarso-metatarsal fractures, the Lisfranc fracture, are more rare. Kids under four years of age especially have a ton of cartilage, so only the calcaneus and talus are ossified at birth, and the preponderance of cartilage also lets mid and hind foot fractures remodel really well in children under eight. So chances are you're not going to see many problematic mid and hind foot fractures in kids that are younger than 
you know, four to five years of age, or probably somebody who's less than a third grader, unless you're dealing with a, a talus fracture. Teens have similar injury patterns to adults, and I'll talk more about those in a few minutes. Ortho needs to be called immediately for, again, compartment syndrome, an open fracture, neurovascular compromise, any neck fracture of the talus, an intraarticular calcaneal fracture, or lisfranc fracture. That's a tarso-metatarsal fracture, so the junction between the forefoot and the midfoot. So we'll move to the hind foot and talk about Taylor fractures first, because those are clinically the most important. The Taylor neck has the limited blood supply and has more risk of avascular necrosis. I like to think of it like the scaphoid of the foot. Usually you'll fracture the talus if you're dorsiflexed during a fall. So like a snowboarding accident might be a good example of how this could get injured. You're going to see pain and swelling of the ankle and tenderness to palpation distal to the anterior ankle joint. Some lateral fractures of the talus are really hard to see on plain film, and as is the case with ankle fractures, you may need a CT to better define them. Taylor neck fractures, again, need an immediate call to ortho. Less than 5 millimeters of displacement and less than 5 degrees of angulation generally remodel. So though you can get a short leg splint or a cast, and ortho will end up seeing them in 5 to 7 days after assessing in the ED. Greater than that, then they're going to need open reduction internal fixation. Patients end up in long leg casts for one and a half to two months for some of these injuries. So this can be a big functional problem in the long run if it's not managed initially. The heel or the calcaneus is fractured in little children when they take little falls. So maybe off of a couch, playground equipment, or otherwise. Older kids who fall from greater than 10 feet and in motorcycle and car accidents are at risk for other injuries as well. Obviously on exam, you'll see pain at the heel, kids will toe walk. In addition to the standard three view of the foot, you can add an axial view to get better definition. Per a study from Inakuchi, 50% of calcaneal fractures are actually missed on x-ray, and so, as is the case with talus fractures, a CT may be needed if you're really suspicious. Extra-articular fractures of the calcaneus heal well. Intra-articular do not. They need open reduction internal fixation, and they have a high risk of compartment syndrome you're really only going to see an intraarticular calcaneal fracture in a high-velocity, high-impact injury. So car accidents, motorcycle accidents, falls, that sort of thing. The non-displaced extraarticular calcaneal fracture can have a posterior splint, short leg cast, non-weight bearing for four to six weeks, and definitely see ortho within seven days. Intraarticular, call them in the ED. In the midfoot, the cuboid fracture often is seen when a patient falls from a height with the foot plantar flexed. You can also see a compression injury in a child who sustains a fracture during horseback riding. They call this the nutcracker fracture. You will have tenderness to palpation of the lateral midfoot. So the cuboid is on the lateral part of the foot. On the opposite side of the foot, you have the navicular bone, where you'll see tenderness to palpation and swelling in the medial midfoot. The cuboid is the most common midfoot fracture, and usually these are mild avulsion fractures. It's lateral, so this correlates with the lateral ankle sprains being more common and more inversion injuries. The navicular on the midfoot is less commonly fractured. Know that the initial x-rays of either of these bones, the cuboid or the navicular, may be normal looking. So persistent pain should prompt re-x-ray in about two to three weeks. Avulsion fractures of the cuboid or navicular can be splinted with a short leg and see ortho 
within about seven days. Others call them from the ED. You know, that nutcracker injury, that horseback riding injury that can lead to disability long-term. So if you're unsure, definitely talk to ortho. Now let's talk about these tarso-metatarsal fractures. This is the Lisfranc injury. This is a high-impact injury. So you see them happen in professional athletes because they're running very fast and giant people are falling on them. In kids, a classic story would be a child who's trying to stop a bike or a motorized scooter with their feet alone. So they put their foot flat on the ground with a sole on the ground, and then their foot gets dragged back. So there's violent plantar flexion of the foot. On exam, you're going to see tenderness to palpation and lots of swelling in the medial midfoot. These are significant injuries. X-ray is going to be challenging to see really what's going on, and they're going to need CT scans to define the fracture and dislocation complex. If there's a small degree of displacement, so less than 2 to 3 millimeters, they can be immobilized alone and casted for 3 to 4 weeks. If they're displaced, they need to be reduced in the ED and maybe go to the OR. The long-term risks of Lisfranc injuries are less likely than in adults, but the biggest risk overall is forefoot ischemia and skin necrosis, which I do not have to remind you are both bad. All right, so that's all that I've got for fractures of the feet and toes. The most likely one that you're going to see in the ED is a metatarsal fracture. And remember that most of them do very well. And unless you have an open fracture or lots of angulation, the only one that you really need to call ortho for is the Jones fracture. Look for displacement and rotational deformity in toe fractures. Know that the Taylor neck fracture is a high-risk fracture for AVN, again, like the scaphoid of the foot, and that mandates an orthopedic call in the ED. The heel generally does really well, but high-impact fractures like falls from a height can be associated with other injuries, and intraarticular fractures definitely need to be managed by ortho. In the midfoot, the cuboid is the most common fracture, and they're usually mild avulsion fractures managed conservatively. And the dreaded Lisfranc fracture, that tarso-metatarsal fracture, can lead to ischemia of the forefoot as a high-risk injury that needs immediate orthopedic consult. Well, I hope you enjoyed the fracture season of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Over these past seven episodes, we've talked about various injuries to the skeleton, ranging from radius injuries to supracondylar fractures of the humerus, all the way down to the femur, tibia, and foot. This season was my way of celebrating seven years of blogging and podcasting, and I hope you enjoyed it. I would appreciate any feedback that you can give, whether it's about the content, the offering of CME, or whether I should do series like these in the future. Check out PEMblog.com for more great educational content. Follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets, and check out the Facebook page. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.